One night, a few years ago, just after Christmas, my father-in-law went to the kitchen for a snack. And he looked in the fridge and he didn't find anything he wanted. And so he checked the cupboards and didn't like what he saw there either. But by the dim light of a night in the kitchen, he saw on the countertop a perfectly wrapped, unopened slice of chocolate fudge. And so he unwrapped the beautiful wrapping paper around this slice of fudge, and he breathed in the sweet, rich smell, and he took a bite of chocolate fudge-scented soap. <laughs> what kind of a cruel world do we live in when we start disguising soap as chocolate fudge? Sometimes things aren't as they appear. This is that kind of story that we find in Luke chapter 11. Things are not as they first appear. Now there's a lot going on in this story in Luke chapter 11. So it's important that we pay attention not just to the words that Luke gives us, not just what he says and the meaning of the words, but we have to pay attention to how Luke says what he says, the structure of the story. Luke doesn't just give us words, he gives us images. And so let's start at the beginning of the scene. What does Luke picture for us? He says, Jesus went in to a home of the Pharisees. And at the very end of the story, Luke tells us that Jesus came out of the home of the Pharisees. This is intentional. Luke wants us to see this inside out theme that runs all the way through Luke, but particularly is important to this passage, inside, outside. At the start of the story, we immediately see that when Jesus goes inside of the Pharisee's home, he's immediately considered an outsider. Before it's even begun, Jesus has offended the host of the meal. He does this by not washing his hands. Have you ever found yourself at a fancy dinner and you looked at the table and you weren't sure which fork was for which part of the meal? Or perhaps you didn't know what you were supposed to do with your napkin or if, where to put your elbows? Or perhaps you've been to a coffee shop or a restaurant and you didn't understand the menu and you were receiving all, all sorts of judgment from the person across the counter or the person behind you in line. Well, if you were a Jew devoted to the strict interpretation of the Old Testament law, this is how you might feel in the home of a Pharisee. In no time at all, you would either show yourself to be in or show yourself to be out. But here's what's strange about the passage and the guest who offends the host. Jesus knows the rules. Jesus knows the traditions. He chooses on purpose not to follow them. And this is more than just a breach of etiquette. This is not your mom and her hand sanitizer. I swear my kids have uh, bleeding hands sometimes because of all the sanitizer in our home. The Pharisees did this ceremonially. 
It is a ritual, a ritual symbolizing purity more than it is an act that purifies. Washing or not washing was a way of categorizing people. It was a way of deciding who's in and who's out. Who's clean, who's pure, who's unclean, and who's impure. And Luke tells us the Pharisees were amazed, and it was not the good kind of amazement. The response is more like shock. The host is appalled, even offended. How could this Jesus be the Messiah if he doesn't wash his hands? How can Jesus be the one to rescue us if he doesn't play by our rules, if he's not even pure, if he's not even one of us? Well, if this is the inciting incident, the major conflict is about to happen. Jesus, per usual in the Gospels, either reads the facial expressions and body language of the Pharisees or he reads their mind, and he reacts with a series of critiques. Three to the Pharisees and three to another group of characters that get introduced as the lawyers or the teachers, experts of the law. These critiques begin with a warning that is called a woe. And you might just read this passage and think, whoa, Jesus, this is intense, right? Before we list the warnings to each group, let's clarify who these Jewish religious leaders are that Jesus is dealing with. From this passage, we can see that the Pharisees saw themselves as the preservers of God's law, the rule laid out for them in the Torah. The Pharisees also took a priestly role in painstakingly monitoring and managing their cleanliness and the cleanliness of others. We see multiple examples of this in the passage, the first being the ceremonial washing. But it also talks about avoiding dead bodies and tithing everything down to their spices. Then the lawyers come into the picture. They're here because like the Pharisees, they are devoted to keeping, interpreting, and teaching the law of Moses. Now throughout the gospels, these and other religious leaders are sometimes grouped together. Sometimes they're singled out. Sometimes they're depicted as being at odds with each other. But here in our passage today, we see that they are united. They have come together, they have conspired with one another against Jesus, teaming up in order to keep the law and maintain purity. So let's review the story really quickly. The Pharisees invite Jesus over, Jesus offends them, Jesus reads their mind, and then he starts roasting everybody. Here are the three woes to the Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. They're tithing their seasonings, yet neglecting the justice of God and the love of God. Rich Mullins used to call this majoring in the minors. 
Here's their second woe. Woe to you, Pharisees. You love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. The role of the religious leaders was to serve the people, to show others what God was like, not to be treated as if they were like God. Here's the third woe. Woe to you, Pharisees. You are like unmarked graves and people walk over you without realizing it. This one really hurts the Pharisees because much of the purity laws were about avoiding things that were unclean. And so Jesus is not just calling the Pharisees unclean. He's implying that they're defiling other people as well. And then this is kind of comical. The scriptures allow us to laugh. The lawyers don't read the room. Instead of staying quiet, one tries to step in front of Jesus and the Pharisees and takes a few woe punches for himself. This scene reminds me of the basketball phenomena called getting posterized. The idea is that if you attempt to block a dunk and fail, you end up being the guy getting dunked on in the poster or the highlight of the other player. Here's an example from a few years back. Who stabilized at a time? Here's Shaq. Against Dudley. Shaquille O'Neal is so powerful on that move that's a live scene of the lawyer and Jesus, all right? Just like Chris Dudley should have made a business decision and got out of the way of Shaq, who's been dunking on people all night, the lawyer should have just been quiet. But scripture has preserved for us a poster dunk. Why are the religious leaders mad? Because they just got dunked on by Jesus. Here are the three woes to the lawyers. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. You build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Six woes are warnings, and they can be summed up this way. The purest aren't pure. In fact, they're contaminating others. And the experts on the law are actually criminals and are denying justice to others. Things are not as they appear to be. But what is at the heart of the issue? Are the Pharisees and lawyers really that bad? I think perhaps due to our familiarity with this passage, or to the figurative sense of the, of the word Pharisee in our culture today, or because we know how the story ends with the religious leaders in Jesus, we are quick to vilify these characters. But they were the good guys. I genuinely believe that most of them believe they were honoring God and that they were serving the people of God. They preserved the story of God up until this point, remember? Yet as Jesus reveals, there was a serious internal problem, despite how things looked on the outside. They're not immune to the, to the disease that is affecting all of humanity. The heart of the issue can be summed up in a 
beautiful metaphor that Jesus gives us, the cup. The purity of the Pharisees is only a surface level purity. They are experts at cleaning the outside of the cup. But the whole movement, Jesus says, is rotting from the inside out. The religious leaders are dressed up cadavers. They are whitewashed tombs, painting over mold, offering people shiny garbage while throwing away the key that could free them all. The gospel, Frederick Buechner says, is bad news before it's good news. And the Pharisees are getting their fair share of bad news. Jesus has gone inside their house and he has done a full inspection. And here's his report. The whole structure lacks integrity. If Buechner is right and the gospel is tragedy before it's comedy and finally fairy tale, the tragedy of the Pharisees is that they're walking around sick in need of a doctor while giving everyone else their sickness. But that's not the end of our story. The gospel as comedy is on full display here. And this passage is loaded with irony. In the larger story of Luke's gospel, it starts with the Pharisees and lawyers asking Jesus, why do you eat with such scum? Why do you eat with sinners? Because implied, good Jews would never do this. To do so would be to defile themselves. But at some point in this meal, it must have dawned on the Pharisees and lawyers just what this confrontation meant for them. They are now in the seats of the tax collectors. They are the sinners eating with Jesus. Jesus, a good Jew, the only good Jew, is eating with sinners, with them. Jesus has turned the tables on the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's flipped their purity script. Their hope for purity is not in washing, but in the one who is sharing a meal with them, Jesus. While they're watching to see if Jesus washes his hands, they miss that the actual one who can make them clean is at their table. By the way, have you noticed how many meal scenes there are in Luke and in the Gospels? Jesus eats his way through the Bible. This is strangely encouraging to me. And I think it points to a remarkable truth about Jesus's mission. His restorative plan for the world involves a table. If we want in on that, if we want to change the world, it happens at tables. But back to the story. The Pharisees are blind to the situation. Jesus uses devastating imagery in an attempt to awake them up. They have to know they are dead in order for Jesus to make them alive again. The irony of the whole story and gospel of Luke so far is that the Pharisees think they're on the inside when in fact they are on the outside, as seen in our scripture reading this morning. Not only do they have the same heart condition as everyone else, they're missing out on the new thing that God is doing through Jesus, but Jesus wants them to get in on it. Don't be mistaken, Jesus loves the Pharisee as much as he loves the tax collector. Jesus loves the rich young ruler 
who refuses to get rid of his wealth and goes away sad, as much as he loves Zacchaeus, who gave half his possessions away and gave four times back what he had stolen. It's certainly wrong to view the Pharisees as better than the tax collectors, but we are also making a mistake when we view them as less. The point here is the tax collectors know they're sinners. The Pharisees do not. But if the Pharisees can find a way to answer their question in Luke chapter 5, they will find out why Jesus is eating with them in Luke chapter 11. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? Because Jesus loves sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And he wants to free people from sin, not just forgive them. He wants to give the Pharisees all of the good news because they've fallen for a partial gospel. One that is satisfied merely by cleaning the outside of the cup. This is why we're misreading Luke if we see the woes as condemnation and not an invitation. A warning is grace. At first glance, we might read this passage and think, whoa, Jesus, chill. He must have really hated these guys. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Keep in sight this inside-outside theme in Luke. This is an internal conversation. Remember the picture. Jesus goes inside the home of a Pharisee. It's not public. It's private. Jesus is not seeking to shame or humiliate the Pharisees. Though he will write after this warn of the disciples that everything that is hidden will be made known. Speaking of the Pharisees, right here in this passage, he's having a personal conversation with them. These harsh words in Luke 11 are just between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus's woes are an act of kindness. A woe is grace, not shame. This is what Luke wants us to see. Jesus is confronting sin, not to condemn the sinner, but to convert, to free, to make clean, not only on the outside, but on the inside as well. Luke, you're right, does not hold back on describing the devastating, honest reality of the interior lives of the Pharisees but he also gives us a clear picture of the compassion and empathy of Jesus. The comedy of the gospel for the Pharisees is that despite all their failures and resistance, despite all their misguided interpretations of the law, God still invites them to the table. There is more, Beekner says. The gospel is first tragedy, then it is comedy, and finally it is fairy tale. What is easily lost in this story is that there are six warnings, but also one command. Six warnings, one command, and with that command, a promise. Verse 41 says, clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. Now to catch Luke's play on words, You've got to look at a more literal translation of this verse. Closer to the Greek, it says, give for alms those things that are within. That's the command. And see, everything will be clean for you. That's the promise. 
Give for alms those things that are within. It sounds strange, partly because there are layers of meanings, but also because how do you give to the poor what's inside of you? Perhaps Jesus is asking the Pharisees to give on a more deeper level of generosity. I think he is. One scholar puts it this way. For Luke, almsgiving was an expression of genuine social solidarity, of embracing those in need as if they were members of one's own kin group. To give for alms those things that are within requires sharing what's on the inside with those who are on the outside. Not simply charity, but solidarity. Jesus is asking them to do something radical, to cross social boundaries. You want to be clean on the outside? Don't just give to the poor from a distance. Join the poor. That meaning is there in our passage. Yet on an even larger scale, Jesus is saying, give out of a changed inside. Give me what's inside of you And not only will your actions be clean, but so will your desires, your very nature. You will have purity of heart. Here's the truth Jesus has for the Pharisees and the lawyers. No one can make themselves clean. The experts are not experts because there are no experts, except one. There's only one who is an authority on the law. There's only one who can claim purity, one who can purify Jesus. Here's where we zoom out and look at the bigger picture once again. Luke tells us Jesus went in and Jesus went out, and then Luke tells us Jesus went on his way. The whole gospel of Luke is a march to Jerusalem, the turning point to the cross. Jesus himself will give for alms that which is within himself, all of himself. And see, everything will be made clean for you. Everything, not just the outside, but the inside too. I don't know about you, but when I read this this passage or a passage like this one, I can think of a lot of people that remind me of the Pharisees. Can you? But the longer I sit with God's word, it's like I'm looking in a mirror. What's wrong with the world, wondered G.K. Chesterton. I am, he concluded. I am a Pharisee. I am a Pharisee in that I find myself watching to see who washes their hands at the table when instead I should be grabbing more chairs. I am a Pharisee when my version of purity separates me from and alienates the very people God wants to save. Woe to me when I read all the right books and use all the right woke words, but haven't confronted my own prejudice or allowed God to convert my heart. Woe to me when I love the stories and pictures shared on social media of me doing good more than I do love doing good. Woe to me when I pretend to have it all together, encouraging others around me to hide or not even try, because who, including me, could live up to the false image of righteousness I project? 
I am a Pharisee in that I am not what I appear to be. I am a Pharisee in that I sometimes settle for a gospel that only has the power to clean the outside and go on pretending like everything on the inside is fine. At first glance, the Bible, the biblical ideas of purity and clean and unclean might seem lost on us today, but perhaps it's just hidden. The practice of cleaning the outside is so ingrained in us that we don't even notice it. We live in a culture now in which it's easier than ever to create an image of ourselves, a particular version that we want to share with others. With technology, we can filter, we can spin, we can edit, we can Photoshop our lives. There are so many new ways to clean the outside, though none of them are really that new as we see in our passages today. In fact, it's as old as sin. The first humans not only hid from God, but they covered themselves. Humanity's first attempt to clean the outside of the cup was with fig leaves. And the tragedy of the gospel is on full display in the Genesis account. Not only are we unclean, but we try to clean ourselves. I know it may be difficult to read the Gospels and ask yourself if you are a Pharisee. But if you do, I promise you'll find good news. The good news is that God loves Pharisees. We are invited to Jesus's table today. The only requirement I find in Luke 5 and 11 is that you acknowledge your need. You can be any kind of sinner to eat with Jesus. You can be the kind of sinner that knows it or the one that doesn't. You can be a sinner saved by grace, a sinner who confesses for the first time today. You can even be a good old sanctified Wesleyan sinner who only sins by accident now. That'll count too. You can come to the table. But before we take the bread and cup of Jesus this morning, let's examine our own cup, the vessel that is our lives. Are you what you appear to be? Imagine yourself at a meal with our Lord. And Jesus says, what about your cup? Let's take a look inside. If it helps you at your seat, just form a cup with your hands. And today, let's pray these words together from Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.